Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue an examination of our Methodist heritage by exploring the life of its founder, John Wesley, in our sermon series, The Faith of John Wesley. Join us now for our message, Aldersgate. Welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I'm Jane Grainer. I'm the senior pastor. What happens when your heart gets broken? Well, maybe you'll pray for it to be strangely warmed. And we will talk about that later on in our service. But as usual, we will be taking live prayer requests during our service. If you're worshiping at home, if you have a joy or a concern or a blessing, then just Put that into the Facebook feed, and we will raise that up later in the service. And, of course, for those of you here in the sanctuary, we do have our prayers and blessings cards there in the back. I would also like to invite you, if you have not done so already this week, to give an offering to the ministry of this church. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org. 
You can do that through our church center app, or you can just mail a check to the church. And again, for those in the sanctuary, we do have um, a plate in the back to receive your offerings as well. You can also, through the Church Center app and by writing a check, can also uh, give to our January Communion Rail offering for Reconciling Ministries Network. And this is the United Methodist organization that seeks and works for the full inclusion of LGBTQ people in the life of our church. But that also means that next Sunday, the first Sunday in February, is going to be our regular Communion Sunday. So we will have a new communion rail offering. I don't know what that is yet, but we will announce that next week. If you're going to be worshiping at home next week, I encourage you to have your bread and either wine or grape juice ready so that you can participate in the sacrament with us as well. We do have, as usual, our three connection groups that meet during the week. We have two on, Sunday, uh, on Sundays, our UM Disciplines class via Skype and our Lyft class via Zoom. And right now they're reading the book Revival, Faith as Wesley Lived It, which is one of the books on which this sermon series is based. And then there's the pastor's Bible study Wednesday afternoons, excuse me, Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. And now let us enter into a spirit of worship and prayer with our opening chorus. join me in our opening prayer. God of signs and wonders, breathe new life into us this day, that our spirits may awaken to the joy and the hope of our glorious inheritance in the living Christ. Help us find the faith to believe in what we have not seen, so that others may see, in our loving and our living, the glory of the risen Christ. Amen. Please stand as you're able and join me in our responsive call to worship. I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities." We are blessed to be together this morning, both in this space and at home, and our wish to you is peace be with you. Please join in the singing of our opening hymn, number 332, Spirit of Faith, Come Down. 
Please join in our prayer for illumination. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person some way someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Many of you are familiar with the life of the Apostle Paul, who was also known in his younger days by the Hebrew version of his name, Saul. The young Saul had been born into a Jewish family in the town of Tarsus, which is now in modern-day Turkey. And we can assume they were uh, a generally wealthy family because, first of all, they were Roman citizens. And second of all, they could afford to send their son to Jerusalem to study with the foremost Pharisee and rabbi of the day. Now young Saul was in Jerusalem during the first few years of the Christian movement and the rapidity by which the church was growing began to alarm the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. And many of the disciples, they were arrested and they were brought before the council. Well, everything came to a head with the arrest of Stephen, the first ever deacon we had in the church. His testimony so angered the council that they wanted to kill him. In fact, we read in the book of Acts, Then they dragged him, that is Stephen, out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of their killing him. Well, from that time on, Saul became a persecutor of the church, arresting Christians and throwing them into prison. And looking back later on his life, Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, you have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Well, Saul was zealous indeed. And while Paul never goes into detail, we can imagine this young Saul who follows not only every single written law found in the Torah of the Bible, but every jot and tittle 
of the uh, traditional oral law as well, far beyond the zeal of his fellow Pharisees. He seems to have had no tolerance whatsoever for those who believed differently or who acted differently. His heart and his mind was closed off from anything that might disturb his worldview. But then he goes to Damascus. Sent to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, on that road to Damascus, Saul had an encounter with the living Christ. And his life was never the same. He went from persecutor of the church to the missionary of the church and officially the apostle to the Gentiles. So this former enforcer of the law later argued that the church should not require that Gentiles follow the Jewish law. Justification and salvation came through faith. Both Jesus' faithfulness unto death and our faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. And Paul laid out his argument in greater, greater detail in his epistle to the Romans. And as Wesley read earlier, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Well, Paul came to see that grace and faith and hope and love, these things are the law. And while Jewish law still originated with God and still had great value, following the rules and laws were never the prerequisite for our acceptance in God's eyes, for either Jews or Gentiles. It all came down to God's grace and our grateful response to that grace. In fact, it had always come down to that. Well, despite Paul's magnificent explanation of grace and faith, I'm afraid it's just part of the human condition that no matter what, we just want to solidify and finally then ossify sometimes our religious and our spiritual quest and, and just get it down to a set of rules and laws and steps that you can take. And even though Christianity as well as Judaism are religions of grace, the church, in fact, gradually accumulated a massive bureaucracy with an accompanying set of complicated rules regarding how you can go about earning enough merit to get a ticket out of purgatory and go straight to heaven. And it was this system referred to as the sale of indulgences in which Martin Luther found himself in the year 1517 when he nailed his very famous 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and therefore by that act inaugurated the Protestant Reformation. Though he was a monk and a priest, Luther never felt he was worthy enough in God's eyes. And he later wrote, When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, that is with what we now call Holy Communion, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire the righteousness by my works." Luther spent years in spiritual anguish, and it wasn't until he began to study Paul's letter to the Romans that he finally began to realize and internalize that salvation came through faith and not works. And with this realization came a flood of relief, after which he also wrote, then I felt as if I'd been completely reborn and had entered paradise through widely opened doors. Well, Luther continued to study the scriptures, and eventually he wrote one of, the great, one of his greatest works, which was a comprehensive commentary on the book of Romans. 
And this commentary on Romans, along with many of his other works, became part of this foundational literature of the Protestant Reformation. And these writings were then widely translated and read even decades, in fact, even centuries later. And it was the English translation of Luther's commentary in the Romans that was being read on the evening that John Wesley made his way to a gathering at a house on Aldersgate Street in London on May 24, 1738. A few months later, or excuse me, a few months earlier, he had returned from spending nearly two years in the American colony of Georgia. He and his brother Charles had sailed for Georgia with these very idealistic hopes that they were going to bring the Christian gospel to the souls of the heathen Indians. Well, in reality, John did not, he hardly met, much less evangelized, any Native Americans. Instead, he was given the job of being just the parish priest there in the town of Savannah, Georgia. He disappointed, but John was ever dutiful, and so he settled into his role of being the local pastoral leader. Oh, but he got off to a very rocky start. Because, you see, as soon as he got off the ship from England to Georgia, as soon as he got off that ship, the first thing he did was he confiscated and destroyed all the rum that was on board. The rum had been brought over so that the new colonists could celebrate their new life in America, and this action did not win John many friends. Well, last week we examined how John and Charles had started a holy club while at Oxford, and the holy club eventually earned them the name of Methodists because of this very methodical way they had about uh, their approach to the Christian life. And more than anything, these young men strove to be holy in everything they did, every thought, every word, every deed. They were, they were very strict in their daily lives so they could pray regularly at specific times. They could study the scripture. They could promptly attend chapel on a daily basis and spend both their time and their money assisting those in need. And the habits of the Holy Club were laudable. John's mistake is that he assumed he could insist on this same level of discipline with his new parishioners, the same people who had just made furious by throwing out all their rum. So you can imagine now how, just how popular John was becoming. Uh, many were very angered and they were turned off by their, their new priests' very prim ways. You see, the, the colony of Georgia had been founded as a refuge for persecuted religious minorities as well as a place where people who had been imprisoned for debt could go to make a new start. And so the, the population then was, of Georgia was this very interesting mix between religious enthusiasts and people who had just been paroled from prison. And John endeared himself to this mix of fellow colonists by routinely denying them Holy Communion or even Christian burial if they did not conform to all the rules of the Church of England as he interpreted them. Now, Georgia can be every bit as hot as Texas in the summer, and most folks stayed indoors during the hottest part of the day, and so knowing that this would, would be when they were, would be home, John made it the habit to visit his parishioners during this time in their homes and admonish them to repent of all their sins. It was reported that people started to turn and walk away if they saw John coming. His strict rules so annoyed his servants that they sometimes refused to do his laundry. But there were others who were drawn to the idea of leading a more holy life. 
And John began to assemble a prayer group that met early each morning to pray together. And by early, I mean 5 a.m. And this was fine for those who wanted to do so, but then John had the brilliant idea of making the receiving of communion elements on Sunday morning contingent upon their attendance at these daily 5 a.m. prayer meetings. And so John was just becoming more and more popular. But while John rubbed many people the wrong way, he was undoubtedly charismatic. Most of those who attended his prayer group were young adults, uh, people in their late teens and their early 20s. And among them was a young woman named Sophia, or Sophie Hopke. She was living with her uncle, who was one of the most um, uh, powerful and established men in Savannah, and with her uh, aunt as well. And John and Sophie were just instantly drawn to one another. They would meet and they would talk for hours at a time. And John felt genuinely torn. On one hand, he had previously had made the decision to remain single like the Apostle Paul so that he could devote all his energies to holiness. But on the other hand, his feelings for Sophie were so deep and so compelling that he could, he could see himself marrying her. He began to entertain the idea that perhaps he and Sophie could remain just very close platonic and spiritual friends. He wanted her in his life so much, yet he could not let go of the idea of being fully devoted to his quest for holiness. So John just could not make up his mind. But after a while, his mind was made up for him. One day, Sophie's aunt made an unexpected visit to John to inform him that Sophie had accepted the marriage proposal of another man named William Williamson. Moreover, they were to be uh, married in just three days' time. And John was floored, and he was utterly heartbroken. I read for, for you uh, some last week from John's journal that he kept his entire life. And I wanted to read a little bit of the entry he made the day that he found out that Sophie was going to marry another man. 4 a.m., private prayers, writing and diary. 4.45, private prayer. 5 a.m., meditated, public prayers. 6 o'clock, coffee. And then he talks about several appointments he had with various individuals. 10 o'clock, Mrs. Coston, that's Sophie's aunt. Mrs. Coston's necessary talk with her. Miss Sophie to be married. 11 o'clock. Amazed, in pain, prayed, meditated. Twelve o'clock, necessary talk with Sophie. I quite distressed. One o'clock, more necessary talk with Sophie, confounded. Two o'clock, took leave of her. Two-thirty at home, could not pray. Three o'clock, tried to pray, lost, sunk. And he goes on and on talking to people, having public prayers. And he ends his journal that day with this, no such day since I first saw the sun. Oh dear, deal tenderly with thy servant, let me not see such another. It's really kind of heartbreaking to, to, to read that and just to realize just, um, well, that John Wesley had feelings that all of us have had at some point or another. 
The thing is, he later found out that Sophie had been accepting Williamson's advances the entire time that John and she had been friends, but had never told John anything about this. And so John now felt not only heartbroken, but he felt betrayed as well. And he believed that Sophie's lack of honesty constituted a sin which she needed to confess. So John informed Sophie that unless she publicly repented of her sin, he would have no choice as parish priest but to refuse her communion the next time she presented herself. And sure enough, the next time Sophie came forward to receive communion, John refused to serve her there in front of the entire congregation. Now, technically, John was following church law, but the congregation perceived, and I think they perceived quite rightly, that John's primary motivation was hurt and spite. John may have been following the rules, but not the rules concerning love or grace or forgiveness. And the congregation became enraged. Sophie's new husband brought legal charges against John for defamation of character by refusing Sophie communion. And a few months later, uh, a court indicted Wesley on 10 counts. The night before the scheduled trial, John left, her, left under cover of darkness and boarded a ship back to England. His ministry in Georgia had been an abject failure and an unmitigated disaster. Well, driven to despair, John entered into what we would now call a clinical depression once he got back to London. He had been so desperate to please God, but he had done nothing but fail his Lord. So one month there, or one morning, excuse me, back in London, just a few months later, John was leaving the house when he decided just to open his Bible. And his Bible just happened to open up on these words from the Gospel of Mark. Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And these words gave him hope. Later that afternoon, John went to a service at St. Paul's Cathedral there in London. And many of you may have visited St. Paul's if you've ever been to London. The text of the anthem that evening was from the psalm that we recited earlier, Psalm 130, as our call to worship. John felt that this was his prayer as well. Out of the deep have I called unto thee, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. And so later that evening, May 24th, 1738, John was invited to that meeting on Aldersgate Street. And though he did not want to go, he went anyway. And there he listened as someone read from the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. The German monk, the one who had once felt that nothing he did was pleasing to God, wrote eloquently of God's grace and God's forgiveness that was offered to everyone. All one had to do was accept that this offer was real and then receive the gift. This German monk had come to this realization through the writings of the Jewish Pharisee Paul, who had believed that anyone who wasn't as zealous as he deserved to be destroyed. Well, that is until the day he met Christ on that road to Damascus. John Wesley, who felt that he had sinned and failed enough in the last two years to last a lifetime, hung on those words. And he later wrote in his journal its most famous passage. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God's works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, 
And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Nothing in John Wesley's life was ever the same after that. John's experience would shape the course of the Methodist movement. And while holiness would always remain a major theme of Methodism, an emphasis on God's love and grace and forgiveness would begin to predominate that message. For example, John took that, that action of refusing Sophie communion and turned it into our Methodist theology of open communion. Communion was not meant only for those who had met the conditions set by a human priest. God welcomed everyone to the table. In the United Methodist Church, anyone who wishes to respond to Christ's invitation to the table is welcome to come forward and receive the elements. In some churches, excuse me, in some churches, a person must be a member of that congregation to partake. In other churches, you have to at least be a member of that denomination. And in still other churches, you have to at least be a baptized Christian. But in the United Methodist Church, anyone who wants to come forward is served. If the unbaptized person receives communion, he or she will be encouraged to accept baptism, but it's not required. The table is open to anyone because God's grace and Christ's invitation is open for everyone. 20th century theologian Paul Tillich described in modern language the kind of spiritual struggle experienced by Wesley and Luther and Paul and so many of us as well. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection of life does not appear, when the old compulsions reign within us just as they have for decades, when despair destroys all hope and courage, sometimes at that moment a wave of life breaks into our darkness and it is as though a voice was saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If this happens to us, we experience grace. After such an experience, we may not be better than before and we may not believe more than before. But everything is transformed. In that moment, grace conquers sin and reconciliation brings the gulf, bridges the gulf of estrangement. John Wesley's experience at Aldersgate had such a profound impact on his life that for some time afterward, he claimed that up until that night, he had not even been a Christian until that night. Now later, he reevaluated his experience and he said that Yes, he had been a, a Christian prior to Aldersgate, but the difference was that before his heartwarming experience, he was a servant of God. And after that, he knew himself to be a child of God. And that reminds me of the parable of the, of the prodigal son, where the prodigal returns to his father, uh, looking to be just treated as one of the paid servants, and is said is welcomed back as a son. And God makes the same offer of acceptance and assurance to each one of us. God has already forgiven us. God has already forgiven you and me. And all that you or I have to do is accept the acceptance and experience the joy and the assurance that follows. So I ask, do you experience God from the perspective of a servant 
or from the perspective of a child. Now, we, of course, should be good servants of God, but God wants so much more for us. God wants us to know deep in our hearts that we are loved and accepted as precious children. And even think about how that plays out in your own life. Don't you love your own children and grandchildren more than you would ever love an employee? Well, God loves you infinitely more than that. John Wesley, when he was at the lowest point of his life, accepted God's acceptance. And he experienced a joy and assurance that he had never felt before. And it changed the course of his life. Indeed, it changed the course of history. And it can change the course of our lives as well. And who knows? We might even end up changing history. Amen. Please stand as you're able and join in our hymn of response. Now, all of the text for the hymn will be on the screens, and it will be a tune that is familiar to you, Oh Wally Wally.
And now we come to the portion of our service where we lift up our joys and concerns up to the Lord. I was seeing on the news that uh, last Thursday was World Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, the United States has, a, has, a, has and, and the world have different Remembrance Days, but I think it's a, for, perfectly okay to commemorate the Holocaust more than one day out of the year. But Thursday was World Holocaust Remembrance Day. And um, as you know, I, I just love watching documentaries and, and reading about World War II, and that includes uh, things about the Holocaust. And so I think it's important that we remember, particularly in light of what just happened here in our own Metroplex community just a few weeks ago um, with uh, the synagogue in Colleyville, that we continue to pray for an end to anti-Semitism and an end to all prejudice and all bigotry around the world and pray for a time when the kingdom of God will be made fully manifest and we will never see such hatred again. So Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Of course, we want to be continuing to pray for all of those that are affected by COVID, um, uh, particularly in our schools and particularly in our hospitals and in our medical clinics. I know that our doctors and nurses and other medical personnel are just worn out right now. So a special prayer for all those who work so hard to keep us healthy. So Lord, in your mercy. Uh, we want to continue to pray for uh, Jan's friend Donna. Um, she is being forced, all, all the people in that apartment complex are being forced to move and they have to be out by Monday, which according to my notes is earlier than they said last week that they had to be moved out by so for Donna and all of those who find themselves in a position where they have to be moved out so quickly, and that can be very, very upsetting, I'm sure. Lord, in your mercy. But Jan is also thankful that after her eye injection, which she has several, I don't know how she does this, that her eyes are healthy now so she is able to drive people as needed. And I know she gets a lot of uh, enjoyment and purpose out of that. So... We are also grateful, Jan, that your eyes are healthy, and we are grateful for all those medical personnel that try so hard to keep us healthy. And we know that all these medical people in our lives, this is the work of the Lord, so thanks be to God. And finally, Sheila Clift asked us to um, say thanks for, there was a, a local man in Jacksonville, Florida, who was missing for three days in freezing weather, and he has now been found this morning in a hospital 30 miles away. So thank God for all of those who, well, we'll extend that not just to this man in Florida, but we know that many of our fellow Americans have been having some really bad weather the last few weeks, and many people have been uh, out in the cold. And so for all of those who have been affected by our cold weather, we ask a prayer, but also a prayer of thanksgiving for those who have been found that have made it through. So we know that this is the work of the Lord, and therefore thanks be to God. Now with the confidence that we have as the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
Please join me in singing our closing hymn, which is number 368, My Hope is Built. Please remain standing and remember that you can always find a recording of our service on our Facebook page, on our website, tumcd.org, or on our church webcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And so your action item this week, continue to pray for Trinity so that we will someday have a completed church building. As I said, I think a week or two ago, we hope to get this before the second coming, and hopefully that will happen. But now receive this benediction. Beloved children of God, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Know that you are accepted. And then go and be ambassadors of God's peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. enjoyed and we're blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday we'll continue examining our Methodist heritage through the life of its founder John Wesley in our sermon series, The Faith of John Wesley. 
You'll find recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we are now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.